Um, Jesus, I just want to say, as for me and my house, kind of in this like weird in-between time, that you are even the king of that for us. Um, and even the king over our worries and kind of our fears in this season. In my house, you are king. Um, and I, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would kind of speak a better word to them over their worry, over their disappointment, not in a way that kind of diminishes that, but in a way that maybe draws it into a deeper and better story. Um, and we're just so thankful in the season that you came down for us. we turn our hearts and minds toward you in scripture today, Jesus, we just ask you to come and to move. Come Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I, you need to know that I wear a Christmas sweater every Sunday of Advent, but this one is, this one looks like I got it at Old Navy in the girls' halter stop section. It's getting shorter and shorter all the time. So this might, I'm glad you see it. It's, it might go into retirement after this, this season. So, um, a deceived woman. Two women, both victimized by powerful men, a prostitute, a widowed immigrant, a teenager facing unplanned pregnancy. What do these women have in common? They are all related to Jesus. If next year on January 1, you decide to be ultra spiritual and like find like a read through the Bible in a year plan, and if you make it through the doldrums of Leviticus and the wilderness of Numbers and the strangeness of Ezekiel and the anger of the minor prophets, sometime next fall, you would get to the Gospels and you would get to the opening pages of the book of Matthew, if, if you indeed made it. Or maybe you've just happened to pick up a Bible and say, I'll start with Jesus, and you opened to the book of Matthew, and this is what you found in Matthew chapter 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Okay, all right, okay. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of, 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 was the father of. And probably if you did make it through to that point, that might end it. Or maybe your eyes would just like kind of glaze over, you know, the speed reading count Jesus, maybe. Uh, if maybe you're listening on the audio Bible, you just kind of up the speed to one and a half times just to... But if you do that, if you do that, you miss out on something really rich that Matthew is very intentionally including uh, in, in his gospel. You and I don't do genealogies. 
very much. Uh, our culture is not one that memorizes who descended from who, who descended from who, and descended from who generations back. What you might memorize uh, is stats, like player stats from like football games. If you're an Ohio State fan, our thoughts and prayers are with you in this difficult time. You might remember stats. Uh, you might, uh, I don't know, you, you might remember like ingredients if you're into baking, if you have a hobby, you might know all that about that. But when you get to these genealogies of Matthew, it's what's the point? Well, if you're saying what's the point to the genealogy of Matthew, like then you know how I feel when you like tell me everything that you know about the yardage of this person on your fantasy football team, right? Um, but really what genealogies do in this cultural moment, it's a it's a key piece of history. It's, it's, it's a declaration of where a person stands in the line of things that came before them. And if you're reading this list in Matthew 1, you're, you're reading really just names. Like names you've never heard of. People that don't even feature in scripture. Hezron, Achan, Eliad. These, these, these are names of people who are just lost to history. Now, some of the names might be familiar. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might, or, or went to Sunday school, you might remember learning about Abraham or David. And if you've been around the Bible a little bit more, you might know a little bit about maybe Hezekiah or Zerubbabel. These are like the giants of the Old Testament, figures who are in some ways famous and in other ways infamous. And if you're paying very careful attention, you might find that scattered throughout Matthew's genealogy are some hidden figures. Women, women in the line of Jesus. In the faces of these women, in their stories of hardship and suffering, of failure and victimization, of risk and reward, we find the pivotal role that women, women with surprising stories, take in the grand narrative of, of redemption. And these women are a lot like the female, Af the African-American female mathematicians that helped us win the space race. Did you watch that movie, Hidden Figures, that I ripped the title of the series off of? Um, they are hidden figures often to us. They're not people that quickly come to mind as we think about what God has done in history. But here's the key thing, is that these hidden figures are not hidden to Jesus. In fact, Jesus takes up the stories of these women in his ancestral line. And he spends his ministry bringing hidden figures out of hiding. And his ministry is spent recognizing and dignifying and even empowering women. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at each of the women in the line of Jesus, these hidden figures whose stories call us to see the story of Jesus in a fresh way. And today we're starting with the figure who is most hidden of all, whose name does not make the genealogy in Matthew, nor does it make the genealogy in, in Luke. She is called by her husband, the mother of all who live. You and I know her as Eve. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 3. It's at the very beginning of your Bible. It's where it all began. Genesis, Genesis is a word that literally means beginnings. 
the first three chapters of the book of Genesis set the stage for the human condition. They set the stage for who God is and what he's like and how he longs for the world to be. It sets the stage for why the world doesn't quite work the way that you and I feel somewhere deep down that it probably should be working. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, and he creates the world in beauty. No pain, no, no problems, no punishments. In Genesis 3, that brokenness that we see in our world, the suffering, the sickness, and the sadness, even that sin that dwells in our hearts, that's when it comes crashing in. That brokenness enters the world when Eve, the first woman, is deceived and tempted. And she believes lies instead of the truth. Her husband follows and the world falls apart. Now listen, the opening chapters of the Bible are vitally important. I want to say this again. They're vitally important to understanding the human condition and the heart of God. If you drop a color of dye in the rivers in the Garden of Eden, that's the color of the river in the book of Revelation. How we see what is happening in these three chapters will help us see everything else that happens in Scripture. How you understand these opening chapters of the Bible will determine a great deal about what you believe about God and about humanity, and most relevantly to us today, it will determine what you think of men and what you think of women and how they are supposed to relate to one another. So in, in Genesis 2, God gives the first man, the first woman. They're called Adam and Eve later, and he gives them a command. And this is the command in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that fruit, you will surely die. Let me just read that again to you, okay? Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden, and actually, technically, the woman comes after this. He places the man, and he says, I want you to tend and watch over this garden. Now, here's the thing. You can eat the fruit of any tree in this place. See all these trees? Lots of fruit on them. Have at it. It's golden corral in here. Except for, except for this one tree over here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat it. If you eat its fruit, you'll die. That's his command. You may freely eat of every tree, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that fruit, you'll die. Now, it's important to have that clear in our minds, because as we turn the pages into chapter 3, a snake, the agent of chaos, an agent of Satan, twists the words. So it says this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Okay, already he's twisted it, right? Because what did God say? eat of any tree, any fruit, except this one. And what the snake said was, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? See, he's already deliberately twisting what God said to trip Eve up, right? He just wants to cause her to stumble a little bit. 
Verse 2, she says, Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Okay, again, pause on the play. Did God say not to touch it? No, some of you are listening. God didn't say you can't touch it. God just said you can't eat it. So how is it that Eve is kind of repeating back to him, you, you, you can't touch it? Now, it's probably this. Eve wasn't around when God gave Adam the command. So Adam had to say, yo, girl. God said, we can eat whatever we want. Just don't eat of that tree in the middle. Deal? Yo, girl. And she's like, okay, deal. Now, either because she's tripped up, because he kind of caused her to stumble, she's paraphrasing it incorrectly, right? She's just maybe a little caught off guard, or maybe Adam didn't get it to her right, but the point is, she's under, the imp she's under a false impression. She's saying something back to the snake that God never said, right? And then it goes on. The serpent says in verse 4, you won't die. Now that's the lie. There's another lie too. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you will eat it. That's true, by the way. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Here's the lie. The lie he's telling them is that they're, already, that they're not already like God. Genesis 2 says, let's make man and woman in our image and in our likeness. They already are sharing in that likeness, right? And I can nerd out with you about why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like a driver's license. They would have at some point in the future been able to eat of it, right? But I don't put my toddler in the front seat of my Honda while it's running. I put him in there when it's not running because he likes to beep the horn, but I don't, right? So the problem even isn't that they would know good and evil. He wants them to know that. Right? But the problem is it would be too much too soon, and so he warns them away from this. Right, he, So the enemy lies to them on two grounds. One, that they won't die. Oh, they will. Right, That's one. Two, that they aren't like God, that they aren't who they think they are, that God has somehow withheld this good thing from them. So let's just remember what's happening. The serpent intentionally misrepresents what God said in order to trip Eve up. This causes Eve to paraphrase incorrectly God's first command to Adam. At best, she's embellishing. At worst, she's misunderstood the command, but she's not repeating what's true. The deception comes when he says, you won't die. And by the way, you're not like God now, but if you do, you will be like God. And God doesn't want, he, he's trying to imply that God is holding out of them and the deception works. Look at verse six. The woman was convinced. And she saw that the tree was beautiful. And she saw that its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Do you see how it, the level to which it's speaking to desire? Right? So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Now, Read what, carefully what says next. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. 
At that moment, their eyes were open. See, the serpent was right. When they ate it, their eyes were open. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They go running from the Lord. They hide from him. All sorts of bad things happen. But what does it mean when it says her husband was with her? Our relationships and unity as men and women created in the image of God rise and fall on what we think that turn of a phrase means. What do you picture in your mind? It says he was with her. Did you picture like that conversation happened while he was kind of gone and then he walked up partway through and kind of stumbled into it with her? Let's talk about 17th century poetry for a minute. Sound good? John Milton, in his poem, Paradise Lost, it's this long, 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 boring, drop an anchor on your toe poem about these events. And his embellishments on the story exist in your mind as what the story is actually doing. It's just how it works. So this is what he says about Eve when she gave the fruit to her husband. She gave him of that fair, enticing fruit with liberal hand. She gave him a lot. He scrupled not to eat. In other words, that's 17th century Shakespeare language for he didn't mind having a snack. Against his better knowledge. He says that, Milton says that Adam knew better. He wasn't deceived, Milton says. He says, against his better knowledge, not deceived, listen to this, but fondly overcome with female charm. In other words, Eve, uh, this, this, this last line is Milton's take, but fondly overcome with female charm. In other words, in Milton's version, and maybe yours, Adam would have otherwise been obedient had his wife not seduced him. Adam would have otherwise kept the commandment. After all, Milton says, he wasn't so much deceived as he was aroused, is what Milton says. And this kind of thinking is what leads to women being hidden. Because women can't be trusted. They're too easily deceived. We need men to do the work. And so we'll let women hang out in the kitchen and make the potlucks and the men do the real work. Because women can't be trusted to know truth. Women can't be trusted to communicate what's real. And if they do, they're going to use their bodies against us. I've been reading this book called Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting the Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible. And in it, Dr. Glenn Crider writes this, long quote coming in, here we go. In the story of the fall, in Milton's version, with the seductress and the horny Adam and all these kinds of things, forgive me, but that's what they saying is. In this story of the fall, the serpent attacks the weaker human, while the male, the head and leader of humanity, is absent. The devil thus perverts and corrupts God's order for creation. She is deceived by his wiles. The serpent's wiles eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, experiences the effect of sin, and then devises a scheme by which she can seduce her husband. He falls for her evil plot, is judged by God for listening to his wife, and is warned not to be so easily deceived again. This version of the story usually includes, at least implicitly, a warning to women not to be like Eve, 
and to men not to fall for women's seductive scheming. Are you with me, or is this making sense? He goes on to say, the result is to pit men against women, to train both to see each other as adversaries, and to warn both that the other is untrustworthy, unreliable, duplicitous, and dangerous. Is it any wonder that throughout human history, and maybe particularly Christian history, Dr. Kreider says, the relationship between men and women is characterized by distrust, disunity, disloyalty, discord, and dissension. What we believe happens in Genesis 3 will set the tone for what we do together as men and women. It sets the tone on whether or not we think women need to remain as hidden figures or if they can come out of the light and lead. Genesis 3.6 says again, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The text does not say in any stretch of the imagination that Adam showed up partway through. The text does not in any way say that Adam wasn't tempted until like Eve shook her bosom at him and then he ate the fruit. The text does not in any way say that Eve is more naturally, women are more naturally prone to deception. That's why we, we met around. What we understand of that turn of phrase, Adam was with her. It will set the trajectory for what we believe about when and men and women and how they're to relate to one another. When women are hidden it, because of distrust, disunity, disloyalty, discord, and dissension, when men are vengefully squashed, right? That's what we do in our culture. This is our, like, American public policy solution to the Genesis problem, right? Let's restrain men. Let's make men less so that women can be more, right? which is just literally doing what has been done for 2,000 years of history. Let's make women less so that men can be more. Right? This is not what Jesus does. You're going to see that in a minute. What Jesus wants is men and women operating at their fullest. But that distrust and disunity and disloyalty and discord and dissension comes between men and women when we think that one of the two people in the garden is more at fault than the other. But if Adam and Eve were standing there together while this whole conversation went down, both are equally culpable. If that's the case, if they have equality in their shared guilt, then they certainly must have equality in their shared responsibility to bless the world. If they are partners in crime, then they can be partners in blessing too. If we join with John Milton and we believe that Eve was deceived first because women are prone to being deceived, if we believe that Eve was deceived first and using her wiles took Adam down with her, what we're saying is that women are dangerous and deceptive and that men are somehow more noble and trustworthy and more capable. So women become hidden figures and men, thinking themselves as more responsible, take the lead. And Dr. Glenn Kreider, he calls this a blame game. He says, no one wins in the blame game. That's exactly what happens in Genesis 3. We hid because we were naked and afraid. Who told you we were hid? Adam goes, she did. She goes, the snake did. The snake goes, yes, right? 
To blame Eve and by implication all women for the fall results in a suspicious or skeptical attitude toward women and a wariness or perhaps even a rejection of their contributions to the church and society. It also results in the perpetuation of pride and arrogance of men. Surely, surely there are men who are easily deceived and by other men. What is to be gained by advocating institutionalizing gender bias? What is to be gained by viewing one another as adversaries or enemies. See, if we believe that Eve, by nature being a woman, is more easily deceived and that Adam was dragged down because of her female charm, and we sow these seeds of distrust, disunity, disloyalty, discord, dissension, the enemy gets exactly what he wants. Genesis 3 is the story of the serpent getting exactly what he wants. He wants enmity and hierarchy to exist between men and women. He wants distrust, disunity, disloyalty, discord, and dissension to exist because he recognizes in their sacred createdness as male and female that in the way they mutually bear the image of God together, they are a force to be reckoned with. When Adam is created, God says, I will, I, will give you, I will give you a helper suitable for you. The word helper in Hebrew is the word azer. It has military connotations. Do you know who else is called an, a helper in the scriptures? God in military contexts. She's an Azer Konegdo in the Hebrew, and the word Konegdo is hard to translate, but it means like standing boldly opposite of. What God gives Adam is a counterpartner, a counterpartner. And there, are, there is no other force in God's created order. All of these animals he's created, giraffes and geckos and lizards and orcas and all of these things, there's no other creature that when put together bear his image, and have the power to unleash blessing on the world the way that man and woman can when they are put together. But Genesis 3 is the story of the serpent getting exactly what he wanted, enmity and distrust between the man and the woman. The serpent wanted separation between the man and woman. He wants the counterpartnership to be broken up. Hierarchy between men and women. Hierarchy between men and women. Listen to me. Whether sourced in patriarchy or radical feminism is not what God intended. God invented equality between men and women for the sake of mutual flourishing and cooperative partnership. This is not academic. Let me tell you why. This right here is why the enemy wants your marriage to fail. This is why the enemy wants your marriage to fail. This is why if you're single... The enemy wants to trick you into kind of settling for something less. Because he wants to jack with the counterpartnership. This is why the enemy lies behind both patriarchy and radical feminism, because one elevates the other, one over the other. The enemy delights in misandry, hatred of men, as much as he delights in misogyny, hatred of women. This is not academic. As Adam and Eve leave the garden in Genesis 3, something has changed between them. And they can't quite put name to it, 
the Lord did. And as they leave, as they leave the garden at the end of Genesis 3, there's something different between the man and the woman, and it's something that's as stuck ever since. But as they leave, the Lord issues this promise. And the promise is this in Genesis 3.15. He says to the man, I will call, uh, he says the serpent, he says the serpent, by the way, not the man, the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Even as the Lord judges Adam and Eve and casts them from the garden, he promises an end to the curse placed on humanity because of sin. He promises an end to the enmity, enmity between man and women. And that day will come when the snake crusher arrives. This promise comes to fulfillment thousands of years later when a baby is born in a, a manger in Bethlehem. He is the snake crusher. Thank you, Johnny. We call him Jesus. And I just want to show you one other thing. Look at John 20. Look at John 20. Jesus is of the city of Nazareth. He's born, he grows up in Nazareth. He's born in this city called Bethlehem. He grows up in the house of technically his stepfather, Joseph. He grows in favor with God and men. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He challenges religious power structures of his time. He dies for it. And on the third day, this is what happened. John 20, starting in verse 11. Mary was standing. Mary's a dear friend of Jesus, was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels one sitting at the head and the other at the foot at the place where the body of Jesus had been laying. When was the last time we saw two angels in a garden? When Adam and Eve were kicked out and God put cherubim at the outside to stop them from getting in. Dear woman, they said, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they put him. And she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, please tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus says, and she turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the father, but go and find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and said to them, I have seen the Lord. And she gave them his message. When was the last time we saw two angels in a garden? It's Genesis 3. When was the last time we saw a man and a woman standing in a garden? Genesis 3. Actually, you know where else you see it? You see it in the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is actually a fiction. It's what would the world be like if Eve and Adam hadn't fallen? Because the book of Song of Solomon ends with a man and a woman mutually in love, equally in partnership in a, in a garden. The garden, this is, this is Genesis all over again. It's subtle, but it's there. Listen, anytime you see a garden, the Bible wants you to think of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And there in the garden, Jesus calls a woman to spread the word of redemption. There in a garden, here's what Jesus does. Jesus is bringing women out of hiding. 
Jesus, a man, and Mary, a woman, are restored to counterpartnership, partnering together for the blessing of creation. And as Mary runs from the garden to announce that the snake has been crushed, the partnership between men and women is restored. Many centuries before, the world changed at the hand of a woman. And on this day, in John 20, the world changes again at the hand of a woman. Jesus calls Mary to announce his resurrection and undo the enmity between men and women and call them into kingdom partnership again. So what does this all mean? It means that we need men and women, women operating at their fullest capacity to see the kingdom of God as it's at its fullest. If you watch, um, there's this documentary called Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. It's on YouTube. It's about the underground church movement in Iran. It is a beautiful picture of men and women in counterpartnership together. Right? Because it's, it's these women who are described as Christ-like and godly and submissive to their husbands who are helping to lead the church planning movement in Iran. Right? What we need is men and women operating at their fullest capacity to see the kingdom at its fullest. Way back at the turn of the 1900s, the Azusa Street Revival, if you read that history, it was men and women partnered together. It was also black and white and brown and Asian all partnered together. But it was men and women operating at their fullest capacity to see the kingdom in its fullest. We need men of confidence and consequence whose hearts rise and fall on the kingdom the way they rise and fall on the score of yesterday's game. We need, and let me just, I'm, I've been waiting to find the moment to share this, and I'll, I'll say something that I said to a group of guys in our church six months ago. Six months ago, I said to a group of guys in our church, do you know what makes me absolutely crazy? Is that when I say, who is feeling stirred this morning to come and serve communion? Five women come running down the aisle. And, and my deep question is, where are the hearts of the men in our church? that when a call is placed, they kind of just sit back because they know that a, a woman will take care of it. Is that what's happening? We need men of confidence and consequences and consequence whose hearts rise and fall on the kingdom the way they rise and fall on the score of yesterday's Michigan game. We need men of humility who know their limits. We need men of honor and kindness who dignify women and do not force them into hiding. We need women of confidence and consequence. So the subtext of me saying, where are the men coming to serve communion isn't, women, would you just chill out for a second so the guys will get ahead? Continue beating them down the aisle as a prophetic witness against their laziness, please. We have one life to live. The kingdom is coming. Jesus could return at any moment. I will, I will call whatever able-bodied and not even able-bodied person who wants to serve the kingdom to go and run and be and do. And if it's all women because the men have their heads up their butts, that's fine. 
but we need women of confidence and consequence. We need women brave enough to go running from the garden to preach the good news. We need women of humility who do not vengefully demean or diminish men. If you are a woman who has been led to believe you have to hide, if you are a woman who has been abused by a man, Let this series stand to tell you that there is a place in the story of Jesus for you. If you wonder as a woman what your place is in this story that is so dominated by men, and it is, Jesus comes to give you a place in his kingdom today. All hands on deck this Advent season, my friends. All hands on deck.